Rupert, the abbot of the monastery in Deutz, looked anxiously at the sky on this August 25th, 11.28. Dark clouds had gathered. Soon it would start raining. Rupert was already around 50 years old. He had seen a lot of things and he knew that such an approaching thunderstorm was never a good thing. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it can therefore be seen as kind of a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. This episode, we devote ourselves to some little stories from the first half of the 12th century, because the last episode was quite heavy. We had a look at some of the power relations in Cologne. In the end, not only my head was smoking, but I'm sure yours was too. I hope that's a metaphor in English. It is a metaphor in German, saying you had a smoking after you used your brain a lot. But let's dive in into the history of Cologne with a big fire, locked gates and a messed up Christmas right after the intro. Rupert of Deutz was a real historical figure. He was an extremely educated man and had seen the light of day around the year 1078 in Liège, a present-day city in Belgium. Liège was then, back then, a suffragan bishopric of the Archbishopric of Cologne. As a clergyman, he first became a monk and then went through a successful clerical career. As a writer of theological treatises, he was widely appreciated, although he could probably be very argumentative towards other colleagues who, above all, had opinions different from his own, but he is famous for comments on the Old and New Testament, for example. Would you like a taste from his work? Quote, The greatest sign of love and faith is not to die in patience, but to live in patience in this sinful time of the world, following the will of the Creator who orders all things well, if one is not quickly answered, longing for his dissolution and desiring to wander out of this valley of tears into the joy of the vision of God. End quote. That was nice. That, that's why I put it here. One of the stops of Rupert in his life was the monastery in Siegburg, which our good old pal Archbishop Anno II had once founded. In 1120, Rupert was elected then abbot of the monastery in Deutz by the Archbishop of Cologne at that time, Frederick, after the old abbot had died there. Just that monastery that Heribert had founded here around the year 1000 and the topic we have dedicated a whole episode to. In his approximately nine years as abbot, Rupert moved a lot in Deutz, which is today a right bank district of Cologne's old town. Rupert had a hospital built directly on the banks of the Rhine in Deutz, virtually in front of the monastery itself. However, the hospital, which was dedicated to St. Lawrence, mainly served as an overnight accommodation for pilgrims who came here on pilgrimage to visit the burial place of Hiribert, who had since become a saint. Unfortunately, it would be destroyed in 1257 already. 
However, a new building existed in the same place from 1313 to 1805. Nowadays, unfortunately, you can't see anything of it. The hospital was located right there on today's Rhine Boulevard in Deutz, between the Curacao Monument and the remains of the railroad turntable. So if you ever have a chance to relax in Deutz at the Rhine River, at the bank of the Rhine, there's nothing you can see anymore of that, sadly. Rupert also expanded the Abbey Church in Deutz and had the already begun vaulted choir of it completed. The monastery flourished under Rupert in the 1120s, but then came that very thunderstorm on August 25th, 1128 that we shortly talked about in the intro. The sky darkened, rain began and the first lightning flashed across the sky. Rupert sighed. Deutz had already had enough misfortune in recent times. It was only in 1114 that the attack of Emperor Henry V was barely repelled, an event we already talked about. But all the hoping and praying did not help. Lightning struck one of the monastery's adjoining buildings and immediately the building was in flames. Like a raging monster, the fire spread throughout the entire town. The Lawrence Hospital, for example, which was still under construction, caught fire as well, as did the neighboring parish church. People rushed over and tried to contain the fire with everything at their disposal, but nothing really helped. In the end, all the buildings in Deutz, including those of the inhabitants, suffered damage or burned down. Even the former Roman fort into which the monastery had been built was damaged. The whole of Deutz was a victim of the flames with the exception of the abbey church and the monastery itself. It seemed that at least this time St. Heribert had held his protective hand over his foundation. Reconstruction work began quickly. It was the end of August and autumn and then winter were no longer far away. And while digging through the rubble of the parish church, the burnt-down parish church, they found a small wooden box that had not been damaged by the fire. Carefully, they opened the box. Inside lay a single consecrated host. It, too, had survived the fire unscathed. Many of the people saw this as a miraculous sign, and Rupert saw the whole fire as a punishment from God. Rupert died a few months after the fire catastrophe on March 4, 1129, which also makes March 4 his Memorial Day. He was buried in the Deutz Abbey Church. However, due to rebuilding, destruction and the new construction of the Abbey Church in the 17th century, his grave can no longer be found there. I have told you all this because Deutz, of course, as today's part of Cologne's city center on the right bank of the Rhine, while the most of the part of the old town is on the left bank of the Rhine, Deutz must not be neglected. After all, none other than the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great once founded Deutz at the beginning of the 4th century. Six months after the burning of Deutz, Cologne was the scene of a royal political summit. The rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, whether Ottonians or Salians, sometimes had their problems with the extremely stubborn princes, bishops and magnates of Lower Lorraine. 
that historical region, which includes the cities of Aachen, Liège, Cologne, but also today's Belgian city of Antwerp and parts of today's northeastern France. Henry V himself had struggled for power here several times, twice even directly against Cologne. But here in 1129, peaceful means were used. Thus, Cologne is the venue of a political summit in that year. Emperor Lothar III was to visit the city a full six times between 1125 and 1137. Considering that a ruler was constantly traveling around, preferably to every corner of his big empire, it is fair to say that Cologne was a popular destination for Lothar. The interesting thing about the imperial visit in 1129, the Cologne city ruler, Archbishop Frederick, yes, still the same Cologne Archbishop who officiated for a total of 31 years, was at that time now perhaps not directly in dispute with the emperor, but let's say he did not necessarily enjoy knowing that the emperor was coming to Cologne soon. Now, of course, Frederick was the supreme city ruler and a powerful imperial prince. Couldn't he simply order that the meeting not take place here in Cologne? Theoretically, Yes. In practice, however, this would hardly have been possible to implement, for Archbishop Frederick knew only too well from early events that he could hardly enforce on the citizens of Cologne who was allowed into a city on the Rhine and who was not. The people of Cologne had already proven this too often for him, in 1106, 1114, 1119, and now also in 1129, it was the inhabitants who decided this not the archbishop. In order to get out of the whole thing in a face-saving way, Frederick simply stormed out of town shortly beforehand, of course under the pretext that he had very important appointments somewhere else in his archbishopric, and hadn't he forgotten to turn off the stove somewhere, maybe Neuss or Altena, it would be better to go there and take a look, safety first. But there is one thing we do know. Cologne is always flexible when it comes to loyalty. If Emperor Lothar III had been able to hold his royal summit with the magnates of Lower Lorraine here in Cologne in 1129, he learned in 1133, so four years later, that the affection of the people of Cologne was not simply a given, especially if one had previously made them mad. But what had happened in 1133? Let's break it down. Archbishop Frederick had died in 1131 after 31 years on the bishop's chair of Cologne. How exactly the election of the bishop took place at that time, I am not yet able to say exactly. Later it would be so from the 13th century that only the members of Cologne's cathedral chapter, so the people at Cologne Cathedral, would carry this election. The then-elected candidate then had to receive confirmation and installation from the Pope. Then the new archbishop was also enfiefed with the secular dominions by the emperor, making him also the supreme city ruler and ruler over other territories in the empire. At that time, it was probably still the case that high clergymen Throughout the whole Archbishopric of Cologne took place, uh, took part in that election. So also abbots, perhaps also provosts, and of course also the canons from the Cologne Cathedral chapter. 
The historical sources remain vague on this. And now in 1131, they, whoever they were, elected Gottfried of Xanten as the new Archbishop of Cologne. Gottfried had previously been the provost of St. Severin, the monastery church in the south of Cologne, at that time still outside uh, of the walled city. But pretty soon it would also be integrated into Cologne city wall. But we will get to that later. But the present Emperor Lothar III and the papal legate, who was supposed to be present at the election of the bishop on behalf of the Pope, they did not recognize the new Cologne Archbishop. And thus, Gottfried lacked the necessary further steps to be installed after his election, also by Emperor and Pope. If that were not enough, the Emperor, some princes, and the papal legate pressed Gottfried. He should give up his claim to the bishop's chair in Cologne, despite the previous election which had gone in his favor. With this strong resistance, Gottfried naturally gave in. Now you ask yourself, of course, what had happened that the emperor and even the pope did not want Gottfried as the new archbishop? Here I must give the unpleasant standard answer of a historian. Unfortunately, we do not know. Not even the faintest clue why Gottfried met with so much resistance. Papal legate and emperor immediately pushed through their own common desired candidate. With Bruno II, the provost of St. Gerion, became the new Archbishop of Cologne. Bruno, I mean, please do not confuse him with the 10th century Bruno, the brother of Otto the Great. This Bruno of the 12th century was the first member of the noble family von Berg to become Archbishop of Cologne. This noble dynasty, von Berg, was on the rise at that time. With possessions on the Lower Rhine, so north of Cologne, the domain of the Counts and later even Dukes of Berg was to continue to expand until 1813, so the end of the Napoleonic rule. The von Berg noble family was to leave its mark on the region. As a powerful political player, both with Cologne at its side and now and then as an opponent of Cologne. Many city districts of nowadays Cologne, especially on the right bank of the Rhine, were once part of the later Duchy of Berg, but also the city of Düsseldorf owes its foundation in the late Middle Ages to this noble dynasty. To this day, the lion of that dynasty adorns the coat of arms of Düsseldorf, and many other small towns and cities that were once part of that duchy also have that Lion of that von Berg dynasty in their coat of arms. But alright, I digressed a little bit. With Archbishop Bruno II, a member of the powerful dynasty, von Berg had become Archbishop of Cologne for the first time. Again and again, these were to provide the Archbishop of Cologne for the next time to, time to come. The people of Cologne, however, did not seem to have been so happy that their local clergy were outvoted in the original election of bishops. Lothar III, who had pushed through the election of Bruno II, clearly felt this uh, personally. At Christmas in 1133, the emperor stayed in Cologne and celebrated the birth of the Lord. Everything went peacefully and harmoniously. It was, after all, the Feast of Love and Family. On December 27th, however, 
Discontent broke free in Cologne. The people took to the streets and raged against the emperor who lingered in their midst. Thus, the Cologne King's Chronicle, which however was written sometime later, reports, quote, There, at Cologne, a furious uprising of the townspeople broke out against the emperor. Without having it settled, he departed. End quote. So the emperor was probably not able to calm the people. He had to flee the city like a kicked dog. That poor man. Was the reason of the riots really the manipulated bishop election two years before? Unfortunately, the historical sources, as the recently now quoted Cologne, King's Chronicle, they keep quiet about it. The connection is obvious, but we do not have this really secured. It remains an unanswered question in historical research. After all, the disposition of crowds can be very fickle. Apparently, the anger at the emperor in Cologne lasted only a short time. And apparently, the emperor did not take offense at the action of the city on the Rhine, because in December 1134, exactly one year later, all was again love, peace and harmony. Lothar III again spent the Christmas days in Cologne, this time without any turmoil. But why am I telling you this? Because here again it becomes clear how the Cologne uh, citizens emerged as a political factor in its own right. Archbishop Bruno II had probably not been able to protect the emperor against his own city population as the actual supreme city ruler. But what must be credited to Bruno II? He was the one who reconciled probably both sides, the city population and the emperor, so that one year later the emperor would return to Cologne for Christmas. In 1137, Bruno II died after only seven years as Archbishop of Cologne. His direct successor, Hugo, died already within the first four weeks after his election, without even having arrived in Cologne for, for it. And his successor, Arnold, the first was to experience firsthand as well that the people of Cologne certainly had a mind of their own, no matter what the cost. At the time of this recording in 2023, inflation is galloping through the world, not only in Germany, the United States as well, and other parts of the world. Prices are rising by up to 10% on the average compared with the previous year and some goods like sugar or, or something even doubled, I guess. Of course, this can make people angry, especially when inflation happens for very strange reasons, like maybe in this event, in 1138. So the procedure is only known to have existed from the middle of the 13th century, but perhaps it was already valid here in the 12th century the Archbishop of Cologne had received the right to mint coins. With it, he could mint coins completely arbitrarily. When a new Archbishop came into office, he was allowed to devalue the Cologne penny. That is, he was allowed to mint new coins. More coins in circulation, of course, reduced the total value of this currency. Probably the new Archbishop and previous provost of St. Andrew Arnold had many debts to pay when he took office, both his own private debts and those of his predecessors. 
in the process, he probably overdid it somewhat with the devaluation of the Cologne penny. Naturally, this met with displeasure among Cologne's long-distance merchants. After all, the Cologne penny was considered coveted reserve currency in trade with England, Scandinavia and the Baltic Sea. Of course, the Cologne long-distance traders did not want to see this in jeopardy. But here again the unpleasant sentence of the historian. Whether here a coin devaluation was the reason for the uproar, unfortunately we do not know. Since we do not know whether this was the reason for the riot, we cannot reconstruct how the city inhabitants and the city lord got along again, but it seems that they were quickly reunited. And Arnold was so cooperative in the following years that he was even subsequently accused of having immensely promoted the rise of the citizens of Cologne as a separate political force in Cologne. Dear lovely listeners, I had a cold for the first time in what felt like an eternity. I just laid in bed for over a week waiting for it to pass. If you think about it, I usually have to do a marathon within three weeks. So researching the topic, finding books, reading, compiling content, scripting, recording, editing, uploading, publishing, promoting the episode, update the homepage, and so on. Then the absence of one week is really bad for me. I had still thought about whether I should add something to this episode. The first mention of the Cologne City Hall? Or that we talk about a clique of rich Cologne citizens who do nepotism and give each other all the offices in Cologne, like in the College of Magistrates and uh, in the wards. But somehow all this would not have fit into the basic topic of this episode. The short anecdotes of how the urban population is becoming more and more self-confident as its own political player. So I hope you'll forgive me if this episode is a bit shorter this time. Unfortunately, as I said, I had to take a rest and then there was a lot going on in my private life again. I vow to do better, of course. What will we deal with next time? Good question. Maybe we really have to look again at the distribution of power in the city of Cologne. Just that click of rich people the emergence of a first city seal, but not used by the archbishop, but by the citizens of Cologne. And why this is something special. Yes, I think it will go something like that. The literature for this episode included, as so often, the High Middle Ages volume for the history of the city of Cologne by Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar, but also the book History of the Archbishopric of Cologne by Wilhelm Neuss was very helpful. The letter is certainly no longer up to date in terms of historical research, but I still find the attention to detail in the work impressive. At the end, of course, as always, I have to say thank you. Thanks to my patrons, who throw a fixed amount of money into my head per episode and thus give me a certain planning security. But thanks, of course, also to the individual tips that are thrown to my head. This time, I would like to thank Anne, Silvia, Andre, and Maximilian. Thank you very much for your donations. Please, if you haven't already, rate and follow this podcast on your favorite podcasting app. This is the best and free way to support this show. And 
we will see each other again in three weeks. Or what, not see, hear each other in three weeks. And I'm looking forward to that. Up until then, have a good one and auf Wiedersehen.